back in the fur shed. I am Jeremiah Wood, and this is the Trapping Today podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Great to have you here. It is starting to slow down in the trapping world. It's that time of year. Spring is coming uh, for a lot of parts of the country. Spring has already come. Uh, Here, we still have a whole pile of snow, but it is melting. If you listen really carefully tonight, you may hear the wind in the background whistling around, blowing a nice little snowstorm uh, on us this evening. But uh, it's getting nicer, it's getting warmer, and uh, most people can't trap right now. There there are some exceptions. Uh, Us northern guys have a lot of uh, extended beaver trapping seasons, Uh, so we're still doing a little bit of that. I just actually went down, uh, took a little walk down to a spot across the house where I had a beaver trap set just to just to be able to say I was still trapping um, even though I got a million other things going on and, and I'm not doing much trapping at least I I can make a set or two and I checked on a little spot there actually had uh, a den a nice little den entrance but it's it's kind of a is a proving to be a bit of a difficult spot to uh, to set I mean first off I had to shovel through three four feet of snow to get to the ice and then I had to chip through a little bit of ice, wasn't much ice under there. But then I had to try and figure out where the, the run was, and I was probably a little ways off of it. Um, I, I wasn't too far. So I set a 3.30, and I came back, and uh, it was set off, and it was just loaded, loaded with junk. And when I started feeling around in the bottom a little more, there was just unbelievable amount of stuff there in the entrance of that den. And this is a little bit unique because these beavers do not have a feed pile. They are feeding on cattails. They're in this kind of cattail marsh. And so there's all kinds of pieces of cattail roots and and, uh, stalks from cattails that are all kind of piled up in front of this, in, in this kind of beaver run in front of this house. So it is... Uh, kind of a mess. There isn't much of a, a run, I guess. I shoved the 330 right down to the bottom, and uh, it was probably in about three, four inches of uh, of culch and debris, and the beavers are probably just cruising over top of it. So um, I I set, I moved that up. I put a little stick, of, a little tiny piece of bait on it, made a little Johnny Thorpe 330 swinging baited set, and uh, left that overnight. Nothing. I pro- Beave probably didn't get out of the house last night. So I just went down there tonight and I put in a snare pole, baited snare pole. I think that's going to work. So I've had a, a lot of luck in, on snares this year. Uh, the ice froze up early and beaver have not had access to a lot of feed this winter. So uh, they're, they're coming to any type of good looking food bait uh, that they can find. So... I think we'll have a beaver there before long. Maybe a couple of beavers. We'll see. So tonight's podcast, as always, is brought to you by Cotts Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. Kyle and Kellen Cotts from Savannah, Illinois. Trapping supply company, lure maker, uh, lure and bait. They sell a lot of urines. They sell trapping supplies. They sell traps. They've got a bunch of books and DVDs. Just about anything that you can uh, imagine uh, if you're looking to trap a certain species, check them out. They probably get a book or a DVD on it. And the uh, makers of the TS85 Beaver Trap, an awesome, awesome trap, eight and a half inch jaw spread, huge, huge kill zone there. And 
it, it's it's um, it's made a lot of people more effective be- beaver trappers. So check them out, kaatzbros.com. If you're ordering a lot of trapping supplies, they even have a rewards program. You get points for every dollar you spend there, so it, it equates to like five percent off. Uh, doesn't sound like a whole lot, but it sure adds up if you're ordering a lot of stuff. So keep that in mind. Keep those guys uh, in mind and thank them for supporting the podcast. I'm sure they would, I know they would appreciate your business. So that's Cots Bros. Two A's, no O. Uh, we may be getting another uh, advertiser. Looks like we got another one coming on, and I'm really excited about this. So I'm not going to say too much uh, about them just yet till we get things all finalized and figured out but uh, I think it's going to be a really good fit and I'm, I'm really pumped up about about them. It's a company that I've done quite a bit of business with and uh, they do a lot for trappers so uh, I'm excited about it. So um, probably be looking for to fill a, one or two more ad slots in the podcast in the future so um, I'm keeping that in mind but there you know I'm, I haven't pushed it very much because there are a couple of criteria for for me to have an advertiser on. Number one, I have to do business with them. Uh, I have to know, like, and trust them, and uh, it has to be a good fit. And I have to feel like I can provide them benefit as well uh, by advertising on the podcast. So it's uh, it, it's something that I take really seriously. Uh, the other thing is um, I'm I'm not going to uh, bring on an advertiser that will compete with our current advertiser or advertisers because I, I really feel like uh, someone someone spent some money on this and invest in getting out on this podcast. Uh, they, they deserve to be uh, treated well and I think uh, you know if I if I rattle out a bunch of trap supply companies um, I, I don't know I just don't feel like that's in, in my opinion it's probably not quite fair to to uh, individual advertisers. So I'm only going to have one trapping supply company as an advertiser, and that's Cots Bros. And uh, if if they aren't advertising in the future, another one might come on. But I'm not going to I'm not going to bring on two or three of them. You know, we're going to stick with one. I'm going to have one uh, fur fur buyer or fur dealer or fur auction company. I'm not going to have two or three of those. Uh, and then you know maybe one one lure maker. Um, one some other category so uh, there'll be just a few slots won't load it up with advertising uh, but uh, we got to pay the bills and I absolutely love supporting good companies that help you guys out uh, to get your trapping supplies and to to sell fur and to make things run so that's good to hear Um, things are starting to slow down in the trapping world Uh, like I mentioned you know a lot of seasons are closed so we're we're, uh, I'm, I'm noticing a little less traffic on trapping today. There's not much going on on the internet as far as trappers talking. And, uh, you know, the podcast are slowing down just a little bit. We've been growing really well. We're actually closing in on uh, close to 50,000 downloads since the podcast began. So that's pretty awesome and exciting. And uh, there, I know there's not a lot of, there's a lot of trappers that once the season ends, you know, they go on to other things and, and, maybe pick up some fishing and some other activities in the summertime and then they'll come back on and start listening again during trapping season but there's some diehard trappers there's some guys that are thinking trapping and talking trapping all season long and and I know who I know a lot of who a lot of you guys are and I know you're continuing to listen to the podcast as I see the downloads so that's uh, that's great 
All right, so let's get into the episode. Oh, another thing moving forward, um, I got um, looks like I'm gonna be doing a couple of interviews here coming up, so I'm really excited about getting some more interviews to you. I think it'll be interesting to talk to a few different people. And since things are slowing down a little bit in the trapping world right now uh, for the next few months, I think it'd be nice little change up to get some some guys on here and, and dive deep into uh, trapping from a bunch of different opinions and different from different viewpoints uh people all over the country so i'm i'm excited about that all right so we'll get into a little bit of trapping related news to start uh tonight's podcast f and w media files for bankruptcy so if you're not familiar with the name f and w media that is the company that publishes the trapper and predator caller magazine that's a magazine that's been around forever in the trapping world. It was for a very long time called The Trapper. Actually, a lot of the old timers that I talked with were, were upset when it when it switched over from being The Trapper magazine to The Trapper and Predator Caller. Um, I actually, uh, I was at a convention a few years back in Montana and I bought a bunch of, I traded a friend for a bunch of old Trapper magazines from the 1980s and I got, I don't know, 20 or 30 of them. And, they're really neat magazines. There's a lot of articles, and, and it's all 100% trapping. But the Trapper and Predator Caller has changed a lot over the years. They are known for being kind of the the go-to magazine in the trapping industry, or they have been. And they were the magazine of the associations where uh, in most states you had an option to subscribe to Trapper and Predator Caller magazine through your state association membership. So, uh, like for instance, for me, Maine Trappers Association, when I started becoming a member there back when I started trapping in high school, I uh, I purchased a membership in, in the MTA and for like an extra 10 or $15, I also was able to subscribe to uh, a year of Trapper and Predator Caller. So every time I renewed my MTA membership, I renewed my Trapper Predator Caller subscription which was really convenient and it was good, got to support the association, got a magazine, and uh, got a, a nice little discount on the magazine subscription as well. And that provided a whole lot of uh, additional subscriptions and uh, readership for TMPC. And, you know, they, they were a good magazine for a very long time, and, and they still are a pretty good magazine. It's just a lot of things have changed. The other thing with with Trapper Predator Caller is they they would publish and they do publish the state association news in the back of the magazine. So there'd be like every state trappers association would have the opportunity to put in a write up on what's going on uh, in their association, the news items, issues that they're dealing with. Um, fur bear seasons, changes, legal things, regulations, outreach, uh, activities, uh, membership, upcoming events, rendezvous, fur sales, and things like that. Uh, that was all kind of published in blurbs in the Trapper magazine. And the cool thing was if you if you were from a different state, you could look at all these other state associations and see what was going on. It was kind of neat. And they still do that, but they, they don't have all the states anymore. Uh, a few things that happened, uh, basically uh, F&W uh, bought 
bought the Trapper and Predator collar a while back, and I don't know the details of of what actually went down at the time, but F&W is a company that publishes like over a hundred different magazines, and it's all like small magazines like Writer's Digest, uh, Deer and Deer Hunting, uh, very small niche magazines, and uh, so Trapper and Predator Color kind of fits in with that, and you know when you're publishing a very small magazine, it's it's difficult to be able to take advantage of certain economies of scale where you know printing, editing. Uh, all of the computer stuff, um, a lot of things, it takes a lot of time and expertise to figure those things out. And it's easier oftentimes if you have a hundred different magazines and you can hire a few people that uh, are good at one particular thing and they can can uh, use that skill and uh, apply it to all of these different magazines as opposed to just working on one. So I think that's kind of the idea of consolidating these magazines into larger companies. Problem was, uh, trappers really want to deal with other trappers and people who understand trapping. And the people at F&W Media down in Florida uh, didn't really understand trapping. They didn't. Most of them didn't understand trapping at all. So th- they would have issues with state associations with you know the memberships and subscriptions and all that stuff and uh, or news or whatever else was happening and it, there's just was oftentimes like a, a communication breakdown where where there was just not you're dealing with kind of corporate America dealing with the you know trappers so it, it was a challenge there um, the the magazine changed a lot. A lot of people were upset because it used to be a, you know, larger kind of tabloid, um, big size print magazine, and they they shifted that down to uh, like an eight and a half by eleven, uh, really thin paper. The quality changed, the size changed, and a lot of people were upset by that. Uh, the over the years, the number of the amount of advertising increased, and the amount of actual trapping articles decreased. So there's just a number of things. People weren't too pumped up. The, it, the big thing that happened uh, to T and PC though was a guy named Bob Noonan out of Maine started the Trappers Post magazine. And uh, if you don't know Bob, he's an incredibly gifted, talented writer. And he obviously is a very good editor as well, and he's done a lot of writing and editing over the years. And, and I don't know, it must have been about a decade ago, he decided to start this magazine, Trapper's Post. And <clears throat> one of, uh, I, actually, I actually did an interview with him back for Trapping Today blog, uh, back when he first started Trapper's Post. And, and if you just Google Bob Noonan Trapper's Post, uh, my article probably shows up from from way back then, and it was just when he was getting started, and and it was really interesting talking to him because he uh, he expressed a lot of the things that trappers wanted to see more of, uh, more articles on trapping, less advertising, high quality publication, and and lots of good pictures and easy to read and everything, uh, and and he did that and. Oh, yep. Okay, so Google Bob Noonan Trapper's Post, one, two, three, four, the fifth uh, the fifth result down 
on Google is Trapper's Post, an interview with Bob Noonan Trapping Today from 2010. So there's, I did some kind of a question and answer. I had Bob on the phone, and, and uh, he went through that stuff. And, and uh, if you want to read through that, uh, I'll try to put a link into the, the show notes here. So Bob uh, put together this magazine that really, I think, is about as good as it gets as far as trapping magazines go. And it continues to be really high quality. It's gaining readership. Trapper's Post now... Um, when I subscribe to Maine Trappers Association, or I, I renew my membership to Maine Trappers Association, I have the option to subscribe to Trappers Post. And a lot of states have switched over and, and gone there instead. Um, it's only published once every other month, but um, they make up for a lack of uh, frequency with the, the high quality of the publication. A lot of good writers, really good trappers. Um, the only gripe I have with Trapper's Post is Bob still hasn't published me, and I, I periodically send him articles I would like to get published or ideas for articles, and and I have not gotten Bob to uh, be convinced that I know what I'm talking about just yet. So <laughs> he's a hard nut to crack. He's an old-timer, and he's been around forever, and I'm, I'm not that old. So um, that's part of it, and I haven't caught 10,000 beavers yet, so I can't write a article about beavers and I haven't caught 500 Martin yet so um, I'm working on that Bob and uh, I'm going to keep hitting you pretty hard with ideas um, over time and and maybe you'll publish me so uh, if you're listening I'm coming Um, but anyway Trapper's Post has been really successful and uh, Trapper's World uh, continues to be successful that's I I really like that uh, magazine as well so there's a lot of competition there and uh, Trapper and Predator Caller kind of, um, you know, it, it's it's done okay. And it, and it's not that T and PC was losing a bunch of money. I don't know that that's the case. But F&W Media has been struggling a lot. So um, this is just, I'm looking at an article here on uh, the, the whole bankruptcy filing. And it says here, uh, according to CEO Gregory Osberg, since 2015, Subscribers to the company's magazines have decreased from approximately 33.4 million to 21.5 million, and advertising revenue has decreased from 20.7 million to 13.7 million. So that's quite a drop. You know, that's over about 100 publications, but they've seen uh, about a third, uh, 30-some percent drop in subscribers, and uh, about. A little more than that, maybe 40% drop in subscription uh, advertising revenue. So they, they've been challenged there. And it says, over the past decade, the market for subscription print periodicals of all kinds has been in decline as an increasing amount of content has been available electronically at little or no cost to readers. I'm guilty of that. Trappingtoday.com. We, you know, everything's available on the internet, and it's it's challenging, it's it's frustrating, but it's reality. It's life. Um, things are changing. Information is becoming cheap and free in most cases. So you got to find ways to get around that, I guess. And the 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 magazines, uh, the best ones like Trappers Post will survive, uh, but the other ones might struggle a bit. Um, the big challenge that F and W had, though was not necessarily the drop in subscription and advertising revenue. It was the company's decision to make some changes and 
they decided they decided to shift over to um, they decided to shift to e-commerce as a major part of their business um, and it, it was kind of interesting well it's kind of confusing really why a media company would try to sell products online um, understanding you know that things are moving online but you're going from competing with uh, tr online information blogs and websites and forums to competing with Amazon you're trying to sell physical products it says in 2018 in the crafts business alone so they're selling crafts online the company spent approximately six million on its efforts to sell craft e-commerce and generated only three million in revenue so uh, you can't do that for very long without running out of money. Uh, Osberg blamed mismanagement by the former company's managers for the e-commerce and company mistakes. Company's decision to focus on e-commerce and de-emphasize print and digital publishing accelerated the decline of the company's publishing business and the resources spent on technology hurt the company's viability because technology was flawed and customers often had issues with the websites and so on. The company currently has two and a half million in available cash and approximately 105.2 million in outstanding secured and unsecured debt obligations. So 2 million in cash, 100 million in debt, not a good deal. So I don't know what's going to happen to the Trapper and Predator Caller magazine. Uh, it's possible, what's, what's likely going to happen, they, they're going through bankruptcy court, so they're going to have to somehow sell off all the assets of the company to try and pay their debtors. And what that means is there's Trapper and Prayer Colors probably going to go up for sale. The question is who is interested in buying it and what is it worth? So, you know, I, I kind of I kind of got to thinking about that and was running some numbers and looking looking at the ad what's likely the ad revenue and and their subscription and all of that and I don't know. I think I think I think it probably makes money, but not much. <laughs> it's a big risk and it's a declining industry. So it really, I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, but all I know is that things are changing. They continue to change and we have to continue to adapt. You know, five years ago, I wasn't doing a podcast. I was doing 10 years ago. I wasn't doing anything. Um, or I guess 12 years ago, um, everything was written and then, you know, things started to shift. People started to get online and I started the the website, the blog, and started posting things on there. And you know, things just change. Things change. You know, things Facebook and Instagram and everything else comes out, and and uh, people are on different media. People are consuming information in different ways. It's sometimes hard to keep up with, but but you got to be able to change with the times. So uh, the company, who knows? They may have a good uh, a good future. They may not. But the one thing that I would point out is uh, for a media company to be successful you have to have things that people are excited to read or excited to listen to uh, you, you got to have quality information on a consistent basis uh, that that's going to get people excited about uh, going to your website reading your magazine listening to your podcast and I, I work and try to figure that out on a daily basis um, don't always get it done but but it's really important these days because 
you know, people can get information anywhere. So good luck to F&W. I'll keep you posted if I hear anything about uh, what, you know, any changes or any developments there. But uh, for now, that's, that's where we're at. Now, for the rest of the episode, I want to talk about get into the Positrip pan system. Uh, then we're going to go into a little bit of trapping history. And maybe we'll circle back into a little bit of modern day trapping. We'll see where we get. But first, the pit pan system. So, Positrip, P-A-W-S-I-T-R-I-P. Pause a trip. Almost like positive like positive traction but pause like an animal's paw and trip which is what happens when the pan goes down and the trap fires positive trip pan system was developed by a guy named Ed Medvets uh, over in Pennsylvania and he's a pretty sharp dude um, with a I don't know if I think he has an engineering background or something but uh, one heck of a trapper in his day now, just going back a little bit, how many of you have the old style jump traps or long spring traps? Um, I I think uh, a lot of us a lot of us still do, and you know, of course, nowadays we're using either body grips, conibear style traps. Uh, we're using coil spring footholds for for our land trapping, uh, maybe some DPS, uh, but the you know the jump traps the long double long springs or or even the single long springs those kind of those were the original traps way back in the day and they've kind of fallen out of favor in a lot of ways uh number 1 the the jumps are a slower trap than the coil spring basically the coil spring trap replaced the jump and the coil is quicker it has it's more dependable you can replace the springs um, you don't have the issue there is some I don't know we can go into this a little bit in the future but the idea of the the spring on the jump trap throwing the foot up a little bit I don't know if that necessarily is an issue or not um, but if nothing else it's a perceived issue um, but the jump the jump traps have become obsolete and they're no longer used primarily because there's nothing that a jump trap can do that a coil spring can't do and do better uh, the long spring traps are a little bit. The, the, the long springs still seem to have their place in a lot of ways. Um, they they have a lot of power and leverage, um, and there are situations where long spring traps I think are are still maybe a little more of a you know important. They they have they have they still have a place in modern trapping, but. Primarily, you know, most people have moved to the coils. What if, however, you decide you want to use a long spring trap or a jump trap? And what what are the potential problems associated with using those today when you compare them to the coils? Well, you know, you get you get the coil the the long springs. Of course, you know, you get issues like the they're tough to bed. They're big you know trap with those springs hanging out and and when you get all that into one trap bed you know there's a lot of digging that you have to do and and a lot to get them stabilized and bedded in and covered up um so so there's that but 
probably one of the big things, the biggest thing for me that that really be, is a problem is the pan system on on the jump traps and the long spring traps. Grab one of those, grab the pan. Now I'm actually I'm gonna do a YouTube video on this sometime in the next time, day I get off here and sit in the first shed and do this. You grab the pan on an old jump trap. I'm I'm holding a number 14 jump right now. And the pan wobbles from side to side. Uh, you set the trap, and the pan can flop up and down. There's there's no stability to that pan. There's a whole bunch of wobble in it, um, and there's no pan tension whatsoever because the old jump traps and the, the long spring traps they they have no way, no mechanism to adjust the pan tension. So you get no pan tension. Uh, your pan travel can potentially be an issue unless you do something with the file down the dog or set it just perfectly and your pan can have a little bit of wobble so that's an issue if you want to use these traps now why would you want to use these traps well there's a number of different reasons uh, some people just nostalgic nostalgia they want to use the old traps because they like them that's great um, I want to use I want to continue, and I need to continue using jump traps because under ice beaver trapping, the best trap that I know of and that I've used under ice beaver trapping footholds is the number 14 jump trap, the, the Oneida jump. The number 14 jump is an old trap that's essentially what it is, is a number 4 jump with teeth on the jaws. And that is really important under ice beaver trapping here in northern Maine because those teeth hold beaver's foot securely and allows for um, it allows for a secure hold and uh, a catch every time that trap is fired. Uh, with the number three, number four jumps, uh, uh, there is potential to have pullouts. Um, beaver messing around a lot after you've caught them in the trap. Uh, the teeth, basically they just, they act to hold the, the foot in place and they don't allow the beaver to pull out and they don't allow them to slide their foot up along, up and down the jaw of the trap. So these are awesome traps. They're incredibly effective. Um, you know, the, the, the animal rights people or the, you know, the, the whole humane argument hasn't been able to be made for these because we only use them uh, for uh, underwater and drowning situations for beaver. So uh, before the animal rights people can say the beavers even had a humane issue, uh, they're dead by, from a drowning set anyway. So it's not an issue. So the 14 jump, getting back to, you know, the 14 jump is an awesome under ice beaver trap. The problem is the pan wobble and the lack of pan tension. I mean, it still works great. It works fine, uh, as is from the factory. But I, I feel that there were a, there's a lot of room for improvement there. So I contacted Ed Medvets um, from uh, Positrip Pan Systems, and and uh, you know I've heard a lot about it. I've heard a little bit about him from other trappers who have have used the pit pans. There's some guys up in Alaska. There's actually put pit pans on their number 14 jumps so I thought it'd be a good idea to look into and I contacted Ed uh, through email he doesn't he doesn't have a website um, 
he actually he does have a few dealers that sell these, but he also sells them directly himself. And his if you're interested in these, his email address is E M E D V E T Z at Verizon.net. That's Ed Medvets. And he he sells these systems. And what the system is a pan which is going to be similar in size to the pan that comes on these traps with a bolt and a nut and a bracket that the bolt and nut and pan go through and are attached to the trap and a dog and the dog you have a couple options for the dog but I got this round crunch proof dog and it's got a night latch on it so for the 14 jump there there are different size pit systems for every trap the size uh, is the same for the number 4 jump, the number 14 jump. It's called PIT-BL4. And I believe Paul Dobbins sells these. Uh, F&T probably sells them, and there may be a couple other people that sell them. But the PIT-BL4 is what works for the four, number 4 and number 14 jumps. And this requires a little bit of welding, because that bracket... Um, the, the way the the number 4 and 14 jumps work, there is a kind of the, the crossbar on the base plate that holds the uh, trap pan has a, a ridge on it. And the ridge has a slot that the pan is kind of crimped onto, onto that slot. And then, of course, the dog comes out from the end of that, uh, that cross piece or cross member. The bracket that mounts that the pan mounts to and the bolt the nut and bolt mounts to uh, has to attach underneath that ridge and it's it's hard to describe but if you look you, you do a little Google searching you'll see on, on Trapper Man there's a couple guys that have posted pit pans and I'll do the YouTube video just to show people that but that to get that to bracket to stay on underneath that ridge of the cross piece you have to weld it on so I brought these down to a friend of mine that's got a sh mechanic shop down the road and he welded on a few of them for me a really quick easy job took about 15 minutes 10-15 minutes and uh, I've got these ready to go so you got a bolt and nut that you use to adjust the pan tension the pan is attached uh, it has two arms coming out of it instead of a single center arm there's one on the each out of the outside ends and so there's absolutely no wobble in the pan. You can adjust the pan tension to whatever poundage you want. And the dog has a night latch on it. So you can bring the pan down to hear click. The trap is set. And you know as soon as that pan uh, is depressed, uh, there's very little travel and that trap is going to fire. Now why is this important? Well, for the 14 jump under ice beaver trapping, we're using baited sets and we're setting these usually on poles. And when a beaver is swimming through the water and it's moving, it's going to move up in the water column to go up toward the bait that's on this pole. And it's got to step its foot on the pan in order to fire the trap. Well, sometimes as the beaver is moving up towards the bait, uh, he may get under the pan a little bit. And if the pan, if there's no pan tension and there's a little bit of wobble there or something, he may fire the trap before he's in position to get caught. Um, he may kind of scramble up to grab a, you know, something to get a grip on. 
he may brush the pan a little bit before he's in position again and fire the trap off and get caught by a toe or not get caught at all. So this pan tension, if, if the beaver kind of uh, scrapes by or, or hits the pan a little bit, it's not going to fire off right away until he's actually feeding on the bait and ha plants a foot down on that pan firmly. And then you're going to get a really good catch, a high uh, secure catch on the foot. And uh, it, it's just it's just going to improve your odds of catching that animal and, and everything. You know, as trappers, we're always looking for advantages and ways to uh, to improve our uh, our catches. Um, so so I think that that the the pit pan, if you're using the jump or long spring traps, I think is a really good thing to look into. See see what you need for your particular situation. They're not cheap. They're actually pretty fairly expensive. Um, they are for from Ed. They're cheaper than they are from dealers. But they're he the ones I bought were three dollars and fifty cents each for the pan, the nut, the bolt, the bracket, and the dog. So to do a dozen, that was forty-two dollars a dozen um, for those pit pan systems. And if you're looking at a number. 14 jump trap that's a 20 25 dollar trap anyway so you know 350 probably isn't a big deal if you can make that trap that much more effective so something to look into that's that's the pit pan system uh, you might you might want to try it out a lot of trappers have used them and are really happy with them now let's move from modern day pit pan systems to uh, a little bit of uh, trapping history. Let's go way, way, way back um, to the early days of the fur trade. And I want to talk about free trapping, the free trapper, because this term comes up when you, we're going way, way back to the mountain man days. Uh, I, I have a book on my bookshelf from a guy named Eric J. Dolan called Fur, Fortune, and Empire. And it goes into the how the fur industry, the fur trade, basically settled North America, and it was back when beaver pelts were were worth a fortune, and people went out into really difficult, challenging territory. They uh, hostile Indians, wilderness country, very minimal supplies or protection extreme weather, uncharted territory, no maps, nothing. These were mount these were the original mountain men. They were uh they were pioneers, they were trappers and they were hardcore dudes. They were tough. They were really really tough. So it it, it really is uh incredible when you actually think back to what these guys went through, but one of the things that I kind of latched onto was the mentality that went on inside the heads of these guys. And I, I thought about this whole free trapper, this whole concept of a free trapper, and what it meant back then in the mountain man days, and how maybe we have some level of free trapper um, in in a lot of us today in, in the trapping industry and uh, in the outdoor industry in general. So you know, a lot of that mountain man spirit is kind of died away as the country has become civilized and more and more civilized all the time. Uh, every state is getting more and more challenging. 
Um, maybe someday all of our trappers will be up in Alaska, but uh, maybe not. But it, it, it's changed. It's changed a lot. And we have maybe haven't changed as much as society has changed. So I kind of put together an article back uh, it was probably almost a year ago now, maybe six months to a year ago. And I published it in the Northwood Sporting Journal, which is a local paper up here in Maine. And it's called Thoughts on the Free Trapper. So I thought I'd read that to you just to kind of get that, uh, get an idea of what, what was going on in my head on, on uh, this whole mentality of the free trapper. It's tough to put a price on freedom. That goes for a lot of things, but we outdoors folks seem particularly fond of living life on our own terms. That means making a living doing something we're excited to wake up to each morning, being our own boss, and living and dying by our own work, skills, and merit. It's tough to be in that place in today's world, which makes that kind of freedom that much more attractive. When it comes to an independent outdoor lifestyle, the free trappers had it pegged. Not trappers, but free trappers. More specifically, the free trappers of the American Mountain Man era. In a day when much of the country was still frontier, only known to Indians and white trappers seeking valuable fur pelts, there was good money in trapping. Many went out in the country seeking fur, primarily in the form of beaver pelts, but the pursuit of a trapping living took on multiple forms. In his 2010 book, Fur, Fortune, and Empire, Eric J. Dolan described it like this. Mountain men were either hired by one of the many fur companies operating in the Rockies, or they were free trappers. Akin to an indentured servant, the hired trapper was paid at a set wage and outfitted by the company. In return, he performed the chores required to maintain the trapper's camp and was obliged to bring his employer as many beaver pelts as possible. There were also free trappers who received their outfit from the company but no wages and were required to sell their pelts to the company at a predetermined price. But the most storied characters in the trapper's fraternity were the truly free trappers who set their own course, answering to nobody. It's hard to imagine, it's hard not to admire the true free trapper. He lived on his own terms, worked when he chose to, and sold furs to his preferred buyer at a price he negotiated. The risks were great, and he lived only on what he could produce. There was no safety net. He was in control of his own destiny. There aren't that many free trappers in today's society. Frankly, there are no actual trappers who make a full-time living trapping fur. A few folks in Alaska and Canada come close, and others make a living by combining trapping furs with animal damage control fees or sell lure, books, instructional videos to other trappers. Though free trappers are gone, the concept of the free trapper is still alive and well in many places today. Freelancers, those who live and work on their own terms, are prevalent throughout the outdoor community. They guide hunters and anglers, write outdoor articles and books, build seasonal cabins, run sporting camps, blaze property lines, harvest timber, run cattle, grow crops, and perform myriad other tasks. The risk is lower, the glory and sense of adventure aren't quite what they were in the mountain man days, but the spirit of the free trapper lives in many of us, and we just can't seem to shake it. So that's my thoughts on the free trapper. Um, I think uh, all of us kind of have a little bit of that mountain man in us when we're out on the trap line, and, and it's great. I think it's a great thing to hang on to. 
Now I want to take you from mountain man days to uh, the thoughts of a trapper on the line uh, in modern times and in from today. So a while back, uh, a trapper from Vermont named Justin Levitt uh, wrote a little something to me in an email, and it was just kind of a reflection of his trap line, uh, his small trap line on the Vermont farm, and it was it was really interesting piece, and I I got his permission to post that on the the on trapping today on the website and i i really enjoyed uh reading that and i i hope that you enjoy listening to it i hope i haven't read this to you before i don't think i have but uh who knows my mind is just going crazy lately Uh, but this is justin levitt and i titled it thoughts from a vermont trap line today i drove out to the line to lay a fisher box my line this year should prove to be a challenge in a good way. No roads on a long portion this year, so I got a drag sled, oiled up the snowshoes, and smiled at the opportunity to run my line like the old-timers did. Leaning up an old log, I wired my box down and went to hunt for some pine boughs, spruce, cedar, or anything I could find to better make my local resident fisher feel at home in a Conibear 220. I walked down the rocky ledge-faced hill and noticed an old can. I picked it up and could barely read the letters. P-E-N-Z-I-L. Interesting. Several letters were rusted over, but then figured out it was an oil can. I could now make out the image of an old red bell lying beneath the word Pennzoil. Looking down, I clearly realized the old farm owner's choice of quality lubricants, as there were many scattered all down the hill. Old bottles, pottery shards, tea kettle, an iron statue standing tall, proud of their age, embedded in the vines. I was standing on the last layer of a previous generation's way of storing things they no longer need or want, the farm dump. I soon forgot what I had originally come over to the fence for, clearly distracted by Gramps' discarded treasures. I began sifting through the pieces of someone's past life. I could not fight the curiosity, using my boot as a trowel, exhuming the layers and realizing they truly represent many generations of hard labor, sweat, and tears. I felt like a detective looking for something, but I did not know what. And then it found me. One of the young cows was interested in what I was doing and observed me from the top of the hill, baying as he urinated in the root-covered soil. I was looking at him and he back at me, almost as if he had found something cool and was about to point his hoof in the correct direction. But he didn't have to. The sun broke through the clouds just for a split second, but it was enough to illuminate the silver circle less than a foot down the ledge from my admirer's bark-colored foot. I climbed up a ways and patted the young bull's head stub. He closed his eyes in ecstasy, and I firmly scratched his head all the while not taking my eyes off the ring of reflection beneath his feet. I bent down to pick it up, and he nuzzled me like an old floppy-eared hound dog, leaving his wet nose to lubricate my shoulder. I found something peculiar. The handle was gone, as was the bamboo that it used to present, but there was a spinning reel in my hand. Not just any fishing reel, but a very old and ornate one. You know, back in the day when people actually built quality and designed something that would stand the test of time. Well, this one had. Looking at the reel part of the spinner, I could see the words etched in a nickel-coated piece of art, both practical and beautiful all at once. Featherlight and on the back a patent date, 10-14-96. I thought myself, 
I thought to myself, well, shoot, that was yesterday. Of course, if yesterday was more than 100 years ago, it was apparent that the date was implying 1896. To me, that was a very interesting feeling to know that I'm here I am on the 15th day of October in the year 2018, carrying on the tradition of our ancestors on a trap line. Standing on the same soil, standing in the same field, standing in the same dump they created, and now getting licked by a cow. I'm sure it's not the first time a cow has licked a man in a wool coat standing here. It just made me think of a simpler time before the hubbub of today. No cell phones, no technology, no interruptions. Just the land and a man <laughs> getting accosted by livestock. I almost began to cry at that thought. I was missing a simpler time when nature was your provider, not just something to look at and take photos of. I stood there realizing that like this generation of treasures I'm standing on, I too am the last of a simpler generation. I turned 41 this month, so maybe the reminiscing is just completely due to my aging mind and body. Or maybe we really have lost something. A connection with the earth that we will ever get back. A dependence upon the land that was vital for survival. Then I remember why I was here. To find branches to cover my fisher box. A smile came to my face as I realized I was carrying on that tradition and it hadn't been yet been lost to today's progressive society. I guess my biggest fear is that someday it very well may be lost. Justin Levitt, Vermont Trapper, October 15, 2018. Thanks again, Justin, for uh, writing, putting that down. You know, there's there's a lot of trappers out there. There's a lot of people out there in the world that, uh, and a lot of experiences, and there's a lot of interesting perspectives that never get down on paper, uh, that never get recorded. And that's kind of part of what I like doing and what I want to do here uh, through the, the site and the podcast, through the interviews and, and such, is to, to get some of that stuff uh, recorded and, and get a record and, and kind of, you know, promote the this whole this whole trapping thing and, and it's more than just catching animals, obviously. So, uh, you know, Justin really uh, touched on a lot of the feelings that we got, we have as trappers and, you know, we're part of a, in some ways, maybe a dying art, um, hopefully not, not something that's declining uh, as much as, as some may think. I think there's a lot of, there's a really good future in trapping. There's a strong future and I'm excited about it. Uh, but but sometimes you know sometimes there there are challenges that we have to work through. So anyway, that was awesome, and I I appreciate that, Justin. Speaking of history and records and writing things and recording things, uh, I'm I'm still working. I I've kind of begun really working in earnest on the Walter Arnold project. I've mentioned this before on a couple of episodes, and. Walter Arnold was this historic main trapper and there were there were a lot of trappers back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s out in the main woods. And I'll tell you what, I I truly believe there were a lot of trappers that were better trappers than Walter Arnold back then. And I, and I know that that may be blasphemy to say that, but I know it was true. But Walter was a trapper who was uh, foresighted enough to write things down and he uh, he was he was a good writer and he enjoyed writing 
and he worked hard at it and he just, he got it done he he wrote things down and so he wrote dozens of articles for fur fish and game magazine um, and and other magazines and he left a record for us to follow and he left a whole pile of records that I've been sifting through over the past few weeks and uh, and trying to put together as much as I possibly can and I think this is going to result in a book at, at the end I I'm um, I'm kind of feeling that way right now it's gonna be a whole heck of a lot of work just to bring you back a little bit um, there's there's a guy named Eric Martin who I met at Neil Olson's Trappers weekend in Bethel, Maine, in 2017, and he's somebody that I am have always since that time been incredibly impressed by. He is a a really good trapper. He's a really good guy, and he is constantly he's in, he's he's probably in his 60s, and he's more enthusiastic about trapping than probably anybody I've ever met. He's always looking to learn new things. He's always excited to talk trapping. Um, and and he really, I mean, he's the reason that I'm going to be giving a, a beaver under ice beaver trapping demo at Neil Olson's next year, next summer. But Eric talked to me about Walter Arnold's papers. And I I knew about the papers. You know, I went to school at University of Maine, and I I was a trapper at the time, and I knew that this whole collection existed and there was a whole bunch of stuff there piled away at some warehouse that Walter Arnold had donated to the university to kind of keep a record of of his life and I don't know what I don't know why he did that I think he he understood the historic importance uh, historic significance of what he had done and he categorized it and organized it all into different folders and everything. And, and it's all there in one big package. And it's been sitting there for about 50 years. <laughs> so um, I knew about it, f- whatever it was, uh, 10, 15 years ago when I was going to school there. And I just never really thought that. You know, I was just a college kid, and I don't. What do I know? I'm not going to go bother someone to go look at the old Walter Arnold collection. Well, Eric, Eric actually went and looked at it, and and he pawed through all the papers and the old articles, and and he, when we talked last summer at Neil Olson's convention in 2018, uh, he brought it up as you know something he thought that I I would be capable of doing because I I've done. You know, I've done quite a bit of writing, and uh, he really inspired me to to uh, tackle this. And for a lo- for the last, I've been thinking about it since August, and the last few months, I've really gotten to the point where I think I think I can get it done. So it's been exciting. It's been a lot of work. I've been down there a couple times already. Spent a couple of full days just pawing through doc- old documents and articles and letters and records and everything else and um, I think I think at some point in the next uh, year um, I'm hoping by this spring but who knows how things are gonna go I'm hoping we have a book uh, something for trappers to get a hold of and and I I don't know exactly what it's gonna look like just yet but there's gonna be something out there and if I sell five copies that's okay 
Um, really, to me, the, the big thing is uh, how much it would mean to me and to, to Eric and a few other guys who uh, who were really inspired by Walter Arnold if I, I could put that book in their hands. So uh, I'm working on that, and, uh, and, and maybe it'll be available for for people to purchase in the trapping industry. I think that would be really cool. So anyway, uh, just a little bit on Walter. Let's go over his biography really quick, just so you can get an idea of who I'm talking about. Walter Arnold was born in 1894 in Willimantic, Maine, the son of Alonzo and Alice Arnold. His father was a market hunter in the 1870s, and as a young man, Walter hunted, trapped, and guided with his father. After service in World War I, he started a mail-order business, selling trapping supplies and animal trapping scents and lures nationwide. In the late 1930s, he also worked for Campbell Fairbanks Expositions, installing trapping exhibits for sportsman shows in New York and Boston. He's one of the original founders of the Maine Trappers Association and served as its president, secretary, and treasurer, as well as the editor of its newsletter, The Maine Trapper. He was the author of several books about trapping and preparing scents, as well as numerous articles published in trapping and hunting magazines and newspapers. His book, Professional Trapping, which appeared in four editions between 1935 and 1947, was widely used by state and federal officials to train trappers and handle, to handle troublesome wild animals. In 1959, he sold his business to Oscar Kronk of Wiscasset and went back to the woods, living by himself until 1980 in one of the northern townships of Maine, a place accessible only by snowmobile or airplane. His life became the subject of many articles in various magazines and newspapers, and the book Goodbye Mountain Man by Donald Anderson featured him and his lifestyle. Walter Arnold remained active until his death in 1980. As he put it in a letter to the Fogler Library Special Collections Department in 1971, I am not like all these woods hermits you hear about that sit around, grow fat, and pass on. I am 78 and still probably do more hard work, summer and winter, than nearly all the men in the state do at age of 45. So that was Walter Arnold. Um, and and again, there were, there were I think there were a lot of people like Walter that never left record of what they did, but he left a, a long, rich trail of of his doings. So... There's a lot there, and I'm, I, it's just been really, really neat to see all the, all the stuff there. And stay tuned, guys. If you, if you're interested in this, um, maybe, maybe shoot me a little email, give me a little encouragement, or uh, let me know if you might be interested in this book when it comes out, so uh, I can keep you in mind as far as printing copies and, and getting them out there. So that's gonna wrap it up for. This week's episode, thank you again so much for tuning in. It's great to have you here each week. Uh, check out my book, Fur Profit, Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market. That's uh, available on Amazon, on trappingtoday.com. Cots Brothers, our sponsor, sells it, and a number of other trapping supply companies. And until next time, keep on thinking trapping, keep on talking trapping, and we will catch you on the next episode.